Amen. You have your Bible this morning? Good. Romans chapter 16 is where you need to go. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I, I think I could sing that every day. That's the best. It's the best verse in the whole hymnal. Maybe the best verse ever, ever written uh, in a church song. It's good stuff, right? Romans chapter 16. Last week we looked at the beginning of formal greetings. You know, at the end of nearly every one of Paul's letters, there's this list of greetings. Say hello to so-and-so. Uh, send my greetings to such-and-such. It's the same thing here, only longer in Romans. He doesn't give any more greetings in any other letter than he does here in Romans. Particularly last week, we saw Paul commend the ministry of a lady named Phoebe. She was likely the one who was carrying the letter of Romans to the church at Rome as she traveled there to do some personal business. We don't really know a lot of details about what was bringing her to Rome, but she was probably carrying this letter. Hopefully you saw that this passage was rich with application, and it should not be quickly passed over. We saw that we are family. We are family, and we must remember how we came to be part of this family. Through the grace of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we came to be part of this family. So we want to remember that, and we want to act like we're family. We want to act like we're family and taking care of each other and loving one another, protecting and providing for one another. We don't just want to know that we are family. We want to act like we're family. And we also saw that we are servants, that we are servants. One of the reasons why Paul commends this lady named Phoebe is that she was a servant of the church. Some translations call her a deacon. Some call, him a, call her a deaconess. Regardless of how you want to interpret that as far as the, her office in the church, what we know about her is that she was a servant. And we want to be servants. We are not professionals. We are not office holders. We are not title seekers. We are servants of the church of God. All of us are servants. And servants must serve. <laughs> if you're a servant and you're not serving... You're not a servant, right? As servants, we must serve. This week, we're going to continue on looking at these greetings. There are 26 individuals. 26 individuals named in the text that we're going to look at today. And again, I want to remind you to lean into this. I don't want you to, I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to check out. I don't want you to think that this is not important. I want you to lean in and see all that God would have for us today. It would be really easy for us just to breeze through this, read these names, and say, all right, let's get to the end of the letter. But I am confident God has something interesting to show to us today. And uh, also, if you're here today and you're pregnant or you know someone who is pregnant or you want to be pregnant at some point, there's 26 names here, uh, many of which are, are grossly underused in our culture today. I'll also give you one little bit of advice. If you, if you ever get called on in a group to read a text like this, uh, just move quickly and with confidence like you know how they're supposed to be pronounced. Um, because no one else in the room knows how they're supposed to be pronounced either. So just go for it, okay? All right, so Romans chapter 16. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. We're going to get through verse 16 today as we study God's word. Uh, in fact, let's stand together today. I know a lot of you lost an hour of sleep last night, and you might be tempted to fall asleep uh, today. So we'll stretch our legs a bit and stand as we read God's word together. This is what God's word says. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is in Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. 
Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trephina and Trephosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegon and Hermes and Patrobus and Hermas and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss and the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for these 26 individuals, uh, these two households, these three house churches. We thank you for the body of Christ. Saints that you have redeemed by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ and you have knit together as a family. I pray that we will be knit together as a family by your grace. That today as we study this text we will be challenged to know one another well and to allow others to know us well. To share our lives in true fellowship with one another uh, in Christ for your glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. That's a lot of names, right? Did you catch any you like? Some good ones in there. Rufus, I would just go ahead and tell you, Rufus is the most interesting guy to me as we study the text today. And uh, when we get to him, I'll, I'll tell you why. And I think that the best way for us to move through the text today is for uh, me to kind of introduce each one of these people and tell you what we know about them. Some of them we know quite a bit, and some of them we know next to nothing. But I want us to see each one of them and look at each one of them and what Paul has to say about them. And, uh, and then we'll zoom out. So we're going to look closely at each person, and then we're going to zoom out a little bit and see if there are some lessons we can learn from the list as a whole. And I really think that's where, that's where the application comes from today, is just the list as a whole and what we can learn about the church. Not, not just the early church, but our church from this list of names. So we'll start with Prissa and Aquila. You probably know her better as Priscilla. Um, this is basically just Paul shortening her name a little bit uh, uh, from, Prissa, from Priscilla to Prissa. And we know way more about these two than we know about any of the others on the list. In fact, these two are mentioned six different times in the New Testament. And if maybe later this afternoon you want to read in Acts chapter 18, in Acts chapter 18 you can read a whole lot about them and their engagement with Paul in ministry. Um, there seem to be several times where Priscilla and Aquila uh, cross paths with Paul for a time. And uh, not only do they share uh, a bit of secular work as tent makers, that's kind of what bonded them together initially, they also share the work of the gospel as missionaries. So, so they really are good partners, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. In fact, I was reading one guy, he talked about how when we, when we study about Paul and his different partners in ministry in the New Testament, you'll see several conflicts that come up. You'll see that he, he kind of gets in a fight with John Mark. He has a little problem with Barnabas. Uh, there, there are different times where Paul and somebody else don't get along, and we read about it in Scripture. Uh, but there's never a situation where we see Paul and Priscilla and Aquila have any kind of tension. It seems to be the mar most harmonious relationship of any of his co-workers. And so um, that's a good thing. 
Uh, I want you to see later on in Acts chapter 18 that Priscilla and Aquila are greatly used by the Lord to come alongside a gifted leader named Apollos, a guy who was eloquent and knew a lot of the Old Testament well, but he wasn't clear about baptism. He wasn't clear about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila really come alongside Apollos and they disciple him uh, while they're in Ephesus for a while. They come alongside and they instruct him further in the ways of the Lord. And then they send him out. And and Apollos really, I think, just does great things for the kingdom uh, in the rest of his ministry. I believe he's the one that wrote uh, the letter to Hebrews uh, that we have later on in the Old Testament. But that's a debate for another day. I want you to see next what the text says about Priscilla and Aquila. First, it says that they were Paul's fellow workers in Christ. It's the first thing he says about them. They are my fellow workers in Christ. They were part of Paul's team. They were working together with Paul to spread the gospel to the nations. Next, he says, they risked their lives for his neck. No, they risked their necks for his life, right? And we don't know exactly what he's talking about there. Um, Paul, Paul was in danger a lot of times. He was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was in prison. There's lots of trouble that Paul faced. And at some point, evidently Priscilla and Aquila stepped in and put themselves in harm's way for Paul. And probably the most likely scenario for that is in Acts chapter 19. There's a huge riot while Paul is in Ephesus. Um, the silversmiths who make little statues for a goddess named Artemis, um, they go crazy because... People in Ephesus are following Jesus, and they're not following Artemis anymore because Paul's preaching about Jesus, and uh, so the silversmiths are losing business, and they start a riot, and in the, in the uh, amphitheater, in the uh, arena at Ephesus, they have this chant going on, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and Paul is almost killed in this process, in this riot, and it may be then that Aquila and Priscilla stepped in and uh, put their necks on the line for Paul's life. Evidently, it was a big deal. Paul remembered it well. Um, Next, the text says uh, that he gives them thanks. It says, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. This is a big deal. And I I read one scholar that said this is the only time in the New Testament that thanksgiving has a human being as its object. In other words, this is the only time in the New Testament where someone says thank you to another person. That every other time... Thanksgiving is expressed in the New Testament, it's expressed upward to God. And so if if that guy is right, and this is the only time where someone says thank you to another person in the New Testament, that's, that's a big deal. That Paul is saying to these people, I thank you. Aquila and Priscilla, I thank you for the work that you are doing. But notice he doesn't say just I thank you, he says all the Gentile churches are thankful to you. All the Gentile churches want to say thanks to you for the work that you're doing in spreading the gospel to them. That's a big deal. So he says, thank you to them. And then the last thing we read is in verse 5 about Aquila and Priscilla is that they hosted a church in their home. Also greet the church that is in their house. Stop there and say a little word about house churches because some people want to take this text and others and say that gatherings like this in buildings like this is not biblical. Uh, that, that we shouldn't have properties and we shouldn't have rooms like this that are dedicated for gathering. Because in the New Testament, in Acts and the letters, the church is met in homes. And that is true. In Acts and in the New Testament, churches met together in people's homes uh, because they didn't have church buildings. <laughs> and as soon as they were able to build church buildings, they did. If you read the history of the early church, as soon as Christians who gathered together were able to build buildings specifically for them to meet in, they did that. Okay? So I don't want us to go the, the direction that says that only a house church is a legitimate church. 
but I also don't want us to go the direction that says a house church is not a legitimate church. I want to affirm that there are small groups of believers gathering in homes all over the world right now. Brothers and sisters in Christ getting together in someone's home. Maybe it's even happening in Harrisburg right now. Brothers and sisters gathering together in a home to study the word, to to have fellowship, to worship together, to do church discipline, to share the sacraments or the ordinances together. And I don't want to ever say that's not a legitimate church, okay? So let's not have that kind of uh, pious attitude toward house churches. Uh, Okay, sound good? So they had house churches, and Aquila and Priscilla were evidently fairly wealthy and had a big house and were able to invite a lot of people to come to their house church. And so Paul uh, commends them and he greets them as they are living in Rome uh, at this point. Now, if you study about Aquila and Priscilla throughout the New Testament, you might be baffled that they moved around so much. They are all over the place. They are in Rome. They are in Ephesus. They are traveling back and forth. And there are some people that say, doesn't add up. There's some people that say, this is all made up. No person in the first century is traveling as much as these people were. Well, if you study it a little more closely, you'll see that a lot of people were more mobile than we would give them credit for. Sure, they didn't have airplanes. Sure, they didn't have trains and automobiles. But people, especially Jewish people in the first century, were traveling all over the place. And what we know about Aquila and Priscilla is they were business people. They were business people. They had this tent-making business, and so they traveled around, and they could really set up shop and work anywhere they wanted to because everyone needed tents in that day. And not only were they uh, professional people, they were Jewish people. And so sometimes they would set up shop in a certain place, and they would receive some opposition. They were from a Jewish background, and so they would receive some opposition. And not only were they from a Jewish background, now they're followers of Jesus, which brings about a whole other set of persecutions. And so sometimes when they're traveling, it's because they get pushed out of a place. But what I want you to see is this. No matter where they went, and no matter why they went there, they took the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And I think that is a great model for us today, that we are mobile people. We are transient people, and we have to move for all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes coal mines shut down, and we lose our jobs, and we have to move to a new place. Sometimes we get a better offer in another place, and we move to a new town for our professional lives. Sometimes a relationship falls apart, and we have to go to a new place. What I want to commend to you, what I want to beg of you, is that no matter why you go wherever you go, take the gospel with you. Make that your first order of business. I believe if you were to interview Aquila and Priscilla and ask them what they do, they would not say we're tent makers. They would say we're missionaries. We are missionaries. Maybe they weren't employed by a mission sending agency, but wherever they went, they took the gospel. And they wanted to spread it far and wide. And we want to be those kind of people too, right? So that's Aquila and Priscilla. The next person on the list is Epenetus. And Paul calls him my beloved. And I want to stop there and say that this whole passage just drips of affection, warm affection. In fact, when he gets to the end, he says, all this affection I've shown about these people, you guys show it to each other. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm going to tell you, that makes me nervous, and we'll preach that in a minute. (laughs) Notice he also says about Epenetus that he was the first convert to Christ from Asia. That's a guy that will stand out in your mind, right? Paul says, when I went to Asia, this guy, Epenetus, he was the first one to believe in Jesus Christ when I preached the gospel. And my translation says he was the first convert. But really the word that is there is he was the first fruit. 
He was the first fruit. And if you know anything about the Old Testament context of that word, it is a pledge of more fruit to come. In other words, he went to Asia and he preached the gospel. And this guy believed. And Paul saw that not as just a celebration of this one man who would believe, but saw, Paul saw it as first fruits, a pledge of more believers to come. And boy, did he see it. All right, But this guy is the very first one. And so he stands out to Paul. He's living in Rome now. And uh, he says, tell, tell that guy I said hello. This is kind of the way the whole text works, right? You get that? Oh, hey, tell Epinetus I said hello. Oh, tell Aquila and Priscilla I said hello. And the next person on the list is Mary. Mary, who has worked hard for you, Paul says. Mary was a common name. Even before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Mary was a common name. And you got to believe it only got more common after that, right? Everybody would want to name their daughter Mary after that. Um, what we know about her is only that she worked hard. The word worked hard for you there means to work yourself to the point of total exhaustion. It means that she gave everything she had in service to the church that was at Rome. We don't know where she came from. We don't know who her parents were. We don't know what she did for a living. All we know is that she gave it all for the local church. What a great testimony. What a great legacy. To be an absolute nobody with a total common name and the word of God recognize you as someone who gave everything they had for the church. That's Mary. Next is Adronicus and Junius. This is maybe one of the most interesting and is definitely the most debated pair of the list. It's probably best to see this as Andronicus and Junia, a husband and a wife. For some reason, some translations want to make Junia a man, and it's because uh, they are referred to as outstanding among the apostles, and I'll get to that in a minute. First thing we want to see is that they are Paul's kinsmen. He says that in the text. They are my kinsmen. That means that they're at least Jewish in their background. They at least would trace their lineage back to Abraham just like Paul would. But it may mean more than that. It may mean that, that they're close kin. It may mean that these two, Paul says, are my cousins. Hey, say hello to my cousins who live in Rome, Andronicus and Junia. Say hi to them. He says they're my kinsmen. He says they were my fellow prisoners. One commentator I read said, Paul was in prison so many times, we can't narrow it down to which time it might have been that he spent time in jail with these guys. Don't you love that? So many times he was locked up that we're not sure which time he was locked up with these two, but at some point he was. And the next thing is where the debate comes in. He says, they are outstanding among the apostles. This is why some translations want to make her Junius instead of Junia. What I want to explain to you is that there are two biblical uses of the word apostle. Two biblical uses of the word apostle. Sometimes it's used in a very specific sense. Um, we would say capital A, apostle. To refer to guys like Peter and James and John and the other 12. Those who had special authority. That when they spoke, it was as if God was speaking to the people. They led with an authority that other people didn't have. And so that's one way the Bible uses the word apostle with a capital A to refer to those guys. The Bible also uses the word apostle with a, what I would say is a lowercase a to refer to anyone who's sent out. Anyone who is sent out. That's what the word literally means. Apostle means one who is sent out. And it can refer to anyone in any capacity who is being sent on a mission. From a slave who is simply taking a, messenger, a message to someone else to a missionary who is sent out with the gospel to take it to the nation. So the question then and the debate becomes, is this capital A apostle or is this lower A apostle when he says they're outstanding among the apostles? 
I met a guy in Mississippi who was crazy, number one. Number one thing you need to know about him is he was crazy. Number two, he believed that he was an apostle with a capital A. And he called me one day to tell me this. He just called me up to basically tell me, hey, if you need anything, I'm an apostle and you can call me. And I said to him, I said, no, you mean, you mean apostle like we're all apostles, right? Like we're all sent out by Jesus with the gospel. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, I'm an apostle like Peter was an apostle. I'm an apostle like John was an apostle. And I said, I think you're crazy. I think, I think you're crazy because I don't think those kind of people still walk around with that kind of authority now that we have the scriptures in front of us, right? Um, so I do not think that these two are being referred to as a capital A apostle like Peter, James, or John. I think that this is a husband and a wife who have been sent out on a mission. I think it would be better for us to see them as missionaries and not just missionaries, outstanding missionaries. People who are taking the gospel to their neighbor and to the nations and spreading the message of Jesus far and wide. They were outstanding among the apostles. And then this last note is most interesting about them. It says that they were in Christ before Paul was. He says, they're my kinsmen, they were prisoners with me, they're outstanding missionaries, and they were in Christ before me. And if you think about that, that might mean something huge. That may mean that they were the object of Paul's persecution before he was converted to Christ. Before he became a follower of Christ, you know what Paul did? He persecuted followers of Christ. He made it his mission to destroy the church. And anyone who claimed to follow Jesus Christ, he went after them. And if these people were his cousins, if they were his near kinsmen, and he found out that they were following after Jesus, you better believe they would have been his highest targets. They would have been his first targets. He would have gone after them. And so it may be that in saying they were believers before me, he is saying, I persecuted them. Before I came to Christ, I persecuted them. But now we're together, and I want you to say hello to them because we're brothers and sisters in Christ now. That, that is a bit of speculation, but not beyond the realm of possibility that Paul persecuted Andronicus and Junia. All right, so there's a lot about them and a little bit of debate about what kind of apostle they were. I think it's best to see them as missionaries. Next is a, is a guy named Am, Ampilatus. Yeah, something like that. Ampliatus. Paul calls him my beloved in the Lord. More affection, more emotion involved in this. He really cares about this person. Urbanus, he refers to as our fellow worker in Christ, another partner in the ministry. Stachys, my beloved, he says. This is another person he cares deeply about. Apelles, he calls the approved in Christ. Um, this is someone who had a legitimate testimony, um, had borne fruit of the gospel in his life. Next, he refers to the house of Aristobulus. This is interesting because this is probably a reference to slaves from that household. You can read in history a little bit about Aristobulus, and he was not a Christian. He's not a Christian, but it's likely that there were some slaves from his household who really aren't ever mentioned by name, but who lived as part of his household who were followers of Christ. And Paul is saying, say hello to those slaves that, that are from that household for me, the brothers and sisters who are followers of Christ but our slaves. That's going to be important later on. Next, he calls out Herodian and calls him his kinsman. That's quite an interesting, quite an interesting name for someone with a Jewish background. Um, you can read about that more on your own time. Then he points out uh, greetings for the house of Narcissus. It's probably similar to the house of Aristobulus. Slaves from that household. Narcissus probably wasn't a Christian himself. Next, this one's good. Tryphena and Tryphosa. 
Tryphena and Tryphosa. They were workers in the Lord. Kind of like Mary, hard workers in the Lord, workers in the Lord. And they were also probably sisters. And they were probably twin sisters. Because there was a tradition in the first century that when there were twins born, they would be given names with similar roots, with the same root. Now, uh, Laura's family has some twins in it. Um, lots of twins, actually, right? And when we found out we were pregnant with Mary Beth, we thought she was going to be twins. Remember this? We, we were here in Harrisburg. Lived in Mississippi, but we come up from Harrisburg. And uh, we were on our way to her dad's house for a family get-together. And, and in the car on the way there, she's like, I'm pretty sure I'm pregnant. Like, that was the first thing I had heard about it. I'm pretty sure I'm pregnant. And so we didn't tell anybody else. It was just between us. And uh, she, at that point, she pretty well knew, right? Had some experience with it and knew, knew what she was talking about. Um, so we get to her dad's house, and she starts to make brownies. She's going to make some brownies. And I, for some reason, I'm standing beside her as she's making the brownies. And she cracks an egg and opens the egg up, and out fall two yolks. <laughs> and it was this moment of, what? <laughs> I had never seen that before. I did not know it was possible for an egg to have two yolks in it. You know what that means? That was a twin egg. So we have this moment, and we don't want to give away to the kids or to her parents that, that this is happening. We want to be able to announce that when the time is right. And so we just have this moment of looking. She cracks another egg. Twins again. <laughs> Craziness. So, so long story, long story that's not so short. This is a long story. Um, found out later that her dad was getting these eggs from a chicken from his neighbor who always lays twin eggs. Like, uh, yeah, every, every one of the eggs in the refrigerator was twins. And Mary Beth was just one child. But she's got the energy of two or three. So Laura's family has a lot of twins in her family. And just like Tryphena and Tryphosa had names that rhyme, uh, you, a lot of you know Laura's grandma. Her name is Pauline. What you might not know is she has a twin brother whose name is Eugene. Pauline and Eugene. It gets better, though, because on another side of the family, there are twins named Chester and Lester. Isn't that great? Chester and Lester. So it's biblical what your family did um, because of Tryphena and Tryphosa. Next, aren't you thankful for that? A little, a little uh, laughter in the midst of all these names. Next is Persis. Persis is a, is a feminine name. Probably a sister who was from Persia. Probably a, a, a sister in Christ who was from Persia. And he calls her the beloved who has worked hard in the Lord. So we got Mary, a hard worker in the Lord. We've got Persis, a hard worker in the Lord. We've got these women in the church serving with all of their energy. And then we have Rufus. Rufus is the most interesting to me. And I want to give you a little backstory on Mark's gospel to make this point. When Mark wrote his gospel, he wrote it for a pretty specific audience. His gospel was written to be delivered to Rome. So he wrote this account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to be delivered to Rome so that people there would have an account of this. So Mark's gospel is connected to Rome. And Mark has a detail when he tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion that no other gospel writer includes. The other gospel writers talk about when Jesus is carrying his cross to Golgotha that a man named Simon of Cyrene is invited to come and, and help bear the burden, right? To help him carry the cross up. 
But Mark alone says that Simon of Cyrene had two sons. Had two sons. You can read about it in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. It says, They pressed, as Jesus is carrying his cross, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. So, so it may be that Paul is saying, Say hi to Rufus. Say hi to Rufus, the son of Simon, who carried the cross of Jesus to Golgotha. Because he lives in Rome now. And Mark's gospel was written, is that cool to you? I don't know why he doesn't mention Alexander. Maybe Alexander's dead at this point. Maybe he's the older brother and he's gone. But Rufus is still alive. And Rufus's dad helped Jesus carry the cross. And now, now Rufus is part of the church in Rome. And Mark mentions him and Paul mentions him. Man, what a... What a backstory to tell if you're Rufus, right? If you've got a name named Rufus, you've got to have a good backstory. All right. And he calls him a choice man in the Lord. A choice man in the Lord. And I don't think at all this is a reference to election or divine sovereignty. I think it has to do with his maturity and his usefulness in the kingdom. That it's not, it's not he's choice because he was chosen for salvation because everyone on this list has been chosen for salvation. But rather he's an outstanding follower of Christ. He's a mature and useful man. And then Paul says, also say hi to his mother and mine. Or his mother who is also mine. So we don't know exactly what Paul means by this. He's probably not saying that, that Rufus and he share an actual physical mother. Probably saying that at some point, Rufus's mom helped take care of him like his mother. That Rufus's mom stepped in and served Paul and cared for Paul and helped him out just like he was her own child. Next, we have a list of names. Uh, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren who are with them. This is probably a house church. This is probably a group of people, maybe even the leaders from that house church. Uh, and Paul says, hey, say hi to that group of believers who, who meet over there in Rome. And then he mentions Philologus and Julia, Nereus and her sister, Olympus, and the saints with them. It's probably another house church. So when Paul writes the letter to the church at Rome, he's not writing it to a, a group that gathers like this. He's saying, I know that in Rome there are several different house churches that meet. And I want you guys to say hi to each other. I want you to have some fellowship amongst one another. Philologus is an interesting name. Uh, it means lover of words. Uh, this was probably a guy who talked a lot. Um, just had, was a chatterbox just from his name. All right, so that's the list, and that's a little bit about those people. Maybe one question that comes to mind is, how could Paul have known all these people if he'd never been to Rome? How, how can he say hi to 26 people who live in Rome if he's never been to Rome? Well, I think there are two reasons. Number one, a lot of these people hadn't always been in Rome. A lot of these people hadn't always lived in Rome. They had traveled about. We know that's the case with... Um, Priscilla and Aquila, that he met them in Ephesus. He got to know them in Ephesus. So it may be that he encountered some of these people as they were all traveling about. But the other reason why he knew some of these people is maybe their reputations had spread far from Rome. In fact, I'm convinced that some of these people, when they heard the letter read for the first time and they heard Paul mention their name, they were shocked. Wait a minute, how does Paul know about me? How does Paul know about me? I've never met him. I've never seen him. I've never even left Rome. But the word of their service had left Rome. In fact, I think Mary might have been one of those. Mary, who worked hard in the Lord. We don't know anything about her. Maybe her reputation of service had 
gone beyond Rome, and Paul had simply heard about it and said, hey, I've heard about that Mary lady in your church, how hard she serves. Tell her I said hello. I want my reputation to work like that. I want my reputation to be such that, that people even hear, even if they've never met me, they hear about my service to the Lord and would be able to greet me even from a distance, okay? So here's the application of all this. What do we learn from this whole list? There's so much here. What do we learn from this list? Well, we learn some things about the church, about what the church was like then and what the church should be like now. You with me on this? We learn what the church looked like then and what the church should look like now. And the church then was, number one, connected. They were connected. In the Lord, they were connected. Notice the use of that phrase, in the Lord, in Christ, all the time. Their connection is because of the gospel. It is our union with Christ that binds us together with each other. It is our union with Christ that binds us together with each other. And our union with Christ came by God's grace through faith in Jesus, right? We don't have a connection with each other apart from Jesus. We only have a connection with each other because of Jesus. And there are some of you who are here today who are not really connected with us. Sure, you, you may attend. You may be a part of some things that we do. But there are some of you here today that aren't really connected with us because you're not really connected with Christ. And you can't be truly connected with the church unless you're truly connected with Christ. And so I want to I invite you to be connected with Christ today if that's the case. If you're separated, if you're far off, I want to tell you that God loves you. Even though you are a sinner, even though you deserve his wrath and his judgment for sin, I want to tell you that he loves you, and I want to tell you how he loves you. He loves you so much and in such a way that he sent his own son to die in your place. To take your sin as if it was his own, to suffer the judgment that you deserve, Jesus came to die for sinners, and he really did die, and they really did bury him, and on the third day, he rose again in victory, overcoming sin, overcoming death, overcoming hell, so that he can save sinners, so that God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, your sins aren't just swept under the carpet. They're placed on Jesus, and God's wrath is satisfied in the death of Jesus as a substitute for you. He stepped in to die for you. And the way we receive this gift, the way we receive salvation and forgiveness and eternal life is by believing and repenting. That's a consistent message of the scriptures. Believe, trust, depend on Jesus Christ for your salvation and turn away from your sins and walk toward him in righteousness. Those two things always go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. And so I want to invite you today to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved and become part of this family. Because our connection with each other is because of our connection with him. So the church then and now was connected in the Lord, but they were also connected in life. They were connected in life. And I want to ask you two questions here. Number one, who do you know? Paul knew 26 people in Rome. He knew something about all 26 of them because he rarely just lists their names. So my question is, who do you know? Who do you really know around here even? Who can you say is a hard worker in the Lord? Who can you say was a fellow prisoner, is my kinsman, is a outstanding amongst the apostles? 
who do you really know? And then the flip side of that question is, who really knows you? And this is the, this is the question that got me this week. Because I feel like I know a lot about a lot of you. Just by virtue of my position and my office here, I feel like I know a lot about you. But I am not real good about letting people know a lot about me. And what I want you to see is that this connectedness in the Lord and this connectedness in the life is a two-way street. If we want to be able to say the kind of things about each other and to each other that Paul says to the church at Rome, we've got to share our lives with one another. We've got to be willing to ask people questions. Tell me who you are. And we've got to be willing to answer questions from other people. Tell me who you are. Let me tell you who I am. We've got to share our lives with each other. And this is, this is countercultural. This, despite Facebook and Twitter and all these things where we're sharing stuff out there for the world to see, we're not really sharing our deepest, darkest secrets. We're not really sharing the, the deepest parts of our heart on Facebook and Twitter, right? But we need to be sharing the deepest parts of our lives with each other in the body of Christ. And maybe we don't do that publicly from the pulpit, but we can do that in small groups, and we can do that in friendships, in, in brotherhood, sisterhood relationships here at the church. So the church then was connected in the Lord, they were connected in the life, and we need to be connected in the Lord and connected in life. Number two is they were affectionate. They were affectionate with words. Oh, she's, she's the beloved. Oh, he is my beloved brother in Christ. There's all this affection, not to mention when he gets to the end of the list and he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Right? Paul sharing all these words of warmth and affection. And then he says, oh, by the way, since you guys are close enough to not just share words, you share a kiss. Man, that makes me sweaty. <laughs> Nervous. If you know me at all, like you know that that makes me really uncomfortable. Because I can, I can handle the side hug barely. But to, to think that the practical application of this text is, when we leave today, we're going to go kiss each other. Oh, man, I just can't even imagine it. <laughs> R. Kent Hughes sums it up like this. He says, Paul's example challenges us to a deep heart affection, a deep heart affection that shows itself in sincere eye contact, perhaps a touch, sometimes an embrace. That's what he means by greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm thankful for scholars like John Stott who says verbal greetings should be confirmed by a visible, tangible gesture. And then he goes on and says, he says, the kiss will vary from culture to culture. Maybe the, maybe the best translation of that idea to our culture is greet one another with a hearty handshake. That I can do. <laughs> that I can do. When we go to visit... When we go other places in the world, it's not like this. Uh, and, and, man, it just it gets me. Um, when when I, we visit our friend in Central Asia and he walks into a place and, man, just <laughs> guys and guys always just kissing each other. You see, you see, <laughs> see guys walking down the road, right, friends just, just going to the market, holding hands, not like just like this but like this. It's, it's weird to me. It makes me uncomfortable, but it's culturally acceptable. Uh, and so we want to, when we leave today, we're going to have some culturally acceptable uh, affection with, with one another. <laughs> so the church then was connected, and the church now needs to be connected. The church then was affectionate, and the church now needs to be affectionate. Third thing is the church then was diverse, and the church now needs to be diverse. There is Amazing diversity in this list. Diversity of race, 
A close study of the names will show that there are Greek names here, Latin names here, Roman names here, Jewish names here. There are all kinds of names represented. That means there are all kinds of people represented. So, so the church then was multi-ethnic. People from different backgrounds and races gathered together as one body. This makes sense in a cosmopolitan area like Rome where there would be people from all over the place. They would get together like that. I think the church should be at least as diverse as its community. They were diverse when it comes to race. They were also diverse when it comes to rank. When you study these names, you'll see that there are some slaves. There's some people who are still slaves. The household of Aristobulus. Uh, those were slaves in his household. There are also some people who used to be slaves. Some names that are slave names, but people who have been freed. So there were slaves in the church, there were freed men in the church, and then there were professionals in the church, traveling tent makers. And uh, Chloe, no, Phoebe, I always want to say Chloe, Phoebe, who was well off and able to travel to Rome. She was also part of the church. And so we want to see that there were all kinds of different people, not just ethnically, um, but as far as rank, socioeconomic status, or something like that within the church. So it wasn't all people that made the same amount of money. It wasn't all people who worked the same kind of jobs. There were all kinds of people in the church. And then there was also diversity in gender. About a third of the people mentioned in these 26 names are women. And the women are commended for their work in the church. And so even though last week we had a little bit of talk about women in ministry, and even though as, as, as a Baptist church and, and the way Scripture seems to clearly present um, the highest levels of leadership within the church being reserved for men, um, that pashup, pastor, bishop, elder, that's a, that's a role reserved for men. Oh, don't think for any second that women don't have an important, vital, absolutely vital function within the church. If it weren't for women at First Baptist Church, we would fall apart. If it weren't for the women who serve, who work hard here at First Baptist Church, like Mary worked hard in Rome, this place would fall apart. Amen? And so we're thankful for ladies who serve, and we recognize um, their place and their importance in the church. Um, and Paul is doing the same thing with the diversity in talking and commending, talking about and commending women. So the church then was connected, affectionate, and diverse, but it was also united. With, with all the differences, all the differences that were present in the church, they were together. Paul doesn't say to the churches at Rome, to the various gatherings at Rome. He says to the saints who are at Rome, to the church who is at Rome. And we want to we be together, right? We want to be united. We want to be one body. And there is a constant pool a constant pull from the enemy to divide us. And he'll divide us in all kinds of ways, right? He wants to split us up by age. He wants to split us up by music preference. He wants to split us up by uh, facility location. He wants to split us up in a number of different ways. And when he is trying to break us up, the answer to that always is not to say, well, let's rally around this style, or let's rally around this location, or let's rally around this age. The answer to unity is not to pick one of those things and rally around that. The answer to unity in the church is for all of us to look to Christ and rally around him and get close to the cross. Because when we're close to the Lord, we're close to each other, right? And if he is our priority, if he is our focus, we will be together and we will be united. All right? So we want to be uh, the things we learned from the church then are the things that we want to be now. Connected, 
affectionate, diverse, and united. And I pray that the Lord will give us grace to be those things. Let's stand together and pray. God, you're so good to us, and and you have such a good plan for our lives as, as your family. Not to live separated from each other, isolated from each other, but but from the beginning in Acts, when you poured out the Holy Spirit and when you saved 3,000 people, you brought them together to live life together and to share together. And I pray that we will. We will be a people who are connected in the Lord. God, I pray for folks who are here today who are not in the Lord, that you'll bring them to repentance and faith that you'll adopt them into this family by your grace, that they will repent and believe today and be connected not only with you, but also with us as well. And I pray that you teach us to share our lives with each other, to really know each other and to be known by each other. Give us transparency. Give us vulnerability, honesty with each other to share our lives. Help us to recognize that connectedness is a two-way street. We want to be connected and we want to be affectionate with our words and with our actions. Help us to express our love for one another. We want to be diverse. We want to welcome all kinds of people, all kinds of races, all kinds of ranks, all kinds of genders. We want to recognize the value of each person within the church. Embrace our brothers and sisters who look differently, talk differently, live differently. Help us to do that. And in it all, Despite all of our differences, God, we pray that you make us one. Unite us together as one family, one body, one Lord, one Father, one baptism, one gospel. God, unite us together as one church for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.